bless you guys. So great to see you. And welcome everyone here. So, finish the sentence. Finish the sentence in your mind and then we'll finish it out loud. Time is. Any one word or quick answers? Time is. Time is challenging. Time is a gift. Time is your greatest asset. Time is relative, depending on your speed of travel. <laughs> Time is fleeting. Time is limited. Time is money. Time is opportunity. You know, time, and we're marking the passage of time as we enter a new year, is something we measure, we manage, we value time, we waste time, and if your parents are here, they might differ in their definition of what wasted time looks like compared to your definition. We spend time. It is an asset. It's, it's a gift. The reality is we don't have unlimited time. <clears throat> As you're getting <clears throat> a little bit more older like Vaughan or others in the room, you start realizing <clears throat> the, the limitations of it. You know, this beginning of a new year, I'm, I'm not great with New Year's revolutions, uh, as I heard in a sermon recently. The problem with the New Year's re resolution is not the resolution or the year, it's the person making the resolution. Um, often, you know, you can make all the things, but are you, are you making the change? But, but it is important to consider our use and understanding of time. You see, time is a gift which makes life a gift. We're, we're living on time entrusted to us. So how will we use it? A man named Thomas Kelly was a Jesus follower who worked as a chaplain. He was an American and then uh, began to work as a chaplain to German prisoners that were captured during World War I. And as he was working with these men mainly, he, uh, he began to recognize they were suffering trauma and loss and that so many of their comrades had died in battle. He developed an empathy towards them, but also in his Christian faith, he developed a radical pacifism. And so he was fired from the American army as, their as one of their chaplains because he was working towards peace and mutual understanding. And he was being too kind to the prisoners. He, he noted nearly a hundred years ago when he was reflecting on what was this impetus that made him act in a way that the state actually sanctioned him, took away his salary and fired him from the military. He said this, nowadays people take time far more seriously than eternity. See, he was, he was using his time in the light of eternity. So holidays are over for most of us. 
So Thomas Kelly says, nowadays people take time far more seriously than they do eternity. It's only when I begin to understand eternity that I can really place value on time, on this gift called life. And so he understood from following Jesus that the best way to use your time is to integrate it with eternity. And so what you believe about what happens after death has a profound effect on how you will live your life. What you would actually choose as a New Year's resolution. How you'll direct your path. What would inspire you to make decisions? Is it just going to be a TikTok video that comes up as cool? Is it just going to be another social media post in whatever platform? Is it going to be a casual conversation? What are the things that are going to sort of like form in us the way we lean into time? Now, we need to say it's simply not true that the reason the people in the Bible believed in life after death is that no one knew any better. There were lots of people in Bible times that didn't believe for a moment that there was anything, any life after life. Jesus encountered a group of powerful skeptics, and they were powerful in their doubt, and they were also powerful in their influence. In fact, they pretty much were the executive ruling class of Palestine in his day. They were called the Sadducees, and they dominated the upper echelons of Jewish life. They held pretty much all the senior positions in the priesthood, so they were different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, they were like a people movement. The Sadducees were definitely a power class. They were allied to Herod, uh, or, or the various Herods. Uh, you know, Herod the Great, for example, built Caesarea in honor of Caesar, and he made it as Roman as Rome could be. So these guys were allied to the Roman power. They collaborated with the political elite, and uh, they claimed in their Jewishness, to be so Jewish that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament and that those books said nothing about life after life. And so they believed that when you died, you died. And that is why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> okay. Oh, groan. Okay, turn with me to... Uh, Matthew 22, we come to an unanswerable conundrum that they present to Jesus. Inside their worldview, it's like, you can't answer this. So Jesus may have to tinker with their worldview. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Rabbi, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. So that's known as leveret marriage. It's in the Mosaic law. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. I'm not sure if there was a direct causal connection. <laughs> and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Gosh, this sounds complicated. 
The same thing happened, but apparently Leverett marriage was there to protect and honor women because to be in ancient Near East without a protector would have left you incredibly vulnerable. So this was actually an arrangement for their protection, not their exploitation. But the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh, who must have been incredibly foolish or brave to sign up in the first place. Finally, to the relief of all the surviving relatives, <laughs> the woman died. <laughs> so their question, <laughs> now then, at the resurrection, at the so-called resurrection, at your resurrection, at the silly thing, whose wife will she be of the seven since, she married, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replies, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. He's critiquing multiple things. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Notice that he's speaking about something that's not revealed anywhere in the scripture. He's actually introducing new revelation as someone who has come from heaven, John chapter 3, and understands what heaven is like. But he's still critiquing the fact that they don't know Scripture, even though he's introducing information that wasn't in Scripture. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. I tremble a bit when you hear these words from Jesus, you are in error. You are mistaken. The way you're seeing things is not the way the world works. You've, you've got a system in mind. You've developed a, a clear pattern of thought. You've built your power around it. And you're organized and you've got all your institutions in place. And yet when you stand in front of this man, Jesus, who at his trial at the end says, that, at the end, I will judge the living and the dead. Jesus, in life, gives them the opportunity to amend their ways by pointing out their error. Now, we're not going to go in detail, in other words, do a detailed study of this passage. We're going to take the key idea of life as explained by Jesus and the relationship between time and eternity and eternity and time. Because they are in this kind of synergy but we need to start with the ideas that Jesus starts with. And the first thing he says is, you are mistaken. You are in error. You see, we mustn't confuse the truth that all people have equal worth and equal value to God with the idea that all arguments have equal value. Jesus had no problem saying this argument is useless. It's not an attack on their person. 
It's not saying I don't love you. It's simply saying this idea is not going to cut the mustard. The fact that people have equal value and worth does not mean that all arguments presented by people have equal value and worth. It's a very important. Jesus did not mind telling people they were wrong. His standard of love is not that love cannot disagree. He did not love these men any less because of who they were and what they believed. But he did not want to leave them in error. Imagine the consequences of getting such a critical life-framing idea wrong. And then he says to them, you don't know the scriptures. As I pointed out, one of the ideas introduced was actually new revelation in that moment. We didn't know at that point whether heaven had marriage or not until Jesus coming from heaven told us. But he'll critique them on the scriptures they accept, and we'll look at that. And then he says, and you don't know the power of God. You see, when we forget that God is creator, that literally in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the spirit of the Lord was brooding, incubating over this random chaos called the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Simply because he said it. His power to create. And as the poem continues, and that makes it no less real simply because it's not necessarily recorded six-day history. The absolute affirmation of it. Why do I say it's not six-day history? Because the sun was only made on day four. It's difficult to get a 24-hour day when you don't have a sun. But what is absolutely clear is that God has made the heavens and the earth. And so if he has the power to create life in the mind and heart of Jesus, he has the power to raise life again. And so Jesus is making a connection between knowing the scriptures as a living witness. So understand, you do not know the scriptures. The scriptures are literally speaking every day of life and death information that we are receiving from God for life and for eternity. It's a living witness. It's not a dead book. It's not an old has-been book. It's speaking to us right now. You do not know, present tense. It's a living witness. And when I accept that living witness, I begin to understand the power of God. So he makes a connection between not accepting Scripture and not understanding how to see the power of God. Where's the power of God? It's going to be in making sure that there is life after life. We need to be careful. There were many scriptures that spoke, of course. Job 19 says, I know that my Redeemer lives, verse 25. In the end, he will stand on the earth. 
Even when my skin is destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. There's something about a crazy thought that his body will die and yet his body will live again. Skin destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. Daniel chapter 12, and we will get there before the year, year end. Um, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But Jesus doesn't go to those passages which do speak of the resurrection. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, which they would have accepted as part of their scriptures. And God introduces himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of people who've been dead for 400 years. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am still now the God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. And so Jesus is emphatic that the living include those who are no longer alive. Does that make sense? That was meant to make you pause. That there's a realm of existence beyond this life. That death does not end life. There is life after life. In John 14, verses 1 to 6, Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Also trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions or dwelling places. And he makes it clear that his personal mission is to make a home for us. He calls it the Father's house. And he speaks of his own death with purpose and intent and design. And there's no hint of meaninglessness or despair, even if there is sorrow. Why? Because his death will atone for my sin, for your sin. Motivated by his own infinite love, he takes our place, dies our death. And offers us his life. That is the resurrection. And he would say, after raising Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Sorry, before raising him from the dead. Because Mary believes that if Jesus had been there, it would have been okay. And then he says, no, it is going to be okay. And she says, now, I know at the resurrection it'll be okay. And he says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection has arrived now. It's here. See, the kingdom is not just future. Eternal life is not just future. It's entering now. In the person of Jesus. He is the way to the Father and we, like prodigals who've lost our way in a far country, Jesus comes to be the way, to show the way. And even if we think we're too ashamed, I remember I was, and uh, please excuse me, all you animal lovers, I was about 17 years old and I loved my dog. His name was Shandy, he was a golden cocker spaniel, and he was a complete coward who used to bark endlessly at the neighborhood. Now, we, we lived in a rather... Uh, it's hard to describe if you live in Pinelands because it, it was a neighborhood which had a front veranda culture because we didn't have big backyards. And so a lot of our lives were spent facing the street so you knew the neighbors because in the evenings you'd sit on the veranda and you'd see everyone else sitting on the veranda and people walking up and down the street would 
walks. Anyone, anyone familiar with a kind of veranda culture? Any case, one day I'm in my room, and I knew that Shandy was always hoping to make it out the front gate. And I heard this howling, like howling dog, running closer and closer. And we had in the house diagonally opposite a savage German shepherd dog that belonged to our neighbors. And I thought, this dog is after my Shandy. And so I jumped up, grabbed my hockey stick, and I ran outside, and there's all the neighbors watching. And sure enough, there's my dog, tail between his legs, belting it for home, as only a dog can do when he's not running properly, you know. And behind was this savage chihuahua. I was so embarrassed, I kicked my own dog and walked inside. <laughs> Sometimes we think when we're coming home to God that he's going to give us the foot and, you know, what did you mess up for? And, and the story of the prodigal son tells us that Jesus has come into our world to save us so that our welcome home is not fraught. And so that that step into eternity is not one of fear. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Trust God and trust me. He's not ashamed. He receives me. And the living include those who are no longer alive. I don't need to be afraid of transitioning. You know, probably during, the odds are during this year, some of us may not make it to the end of the year. If I said that in classic, everyone would burst out laughing. <laughs> the reality is we can't take our time for granted. And so I begin to live in the awareness that this life is not all that there is. But the important thing is I also live in this awareness. Jesus connects my present life and faith with what my situation will be in the next life. So I'm actually living now in ways that are going to make sense of what that future will look like. Many of Jesus' parables hammer home this point. If I trust him, if I follow him, if I receive the gift of the kingdom, if I steward it with faith, everything I do now is an investment in eternity. Think of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the tenants, the parable of the shrewd manager. And so Jesus says this essentially happens in two ways. I store up rewards and outcomes for all eternity. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves. I'll come back to that. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, store up treasures in heaven where moth and Vermin do not destroy. Where thieves can't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. Even more explicit in Luke 16 verse 9, Jesus says, Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it, your wealth is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You're worried about being homeless. You never need to worry about being homeless with Jesus because you've got an eternal dwelling. 
So we use our worldly wealth. Doesn't want you to spiritualize this at the moment. Use what you've got. Use your life. Use your resources to make friends going into the future. So this Christmas, we had a family come and stay. We had several, but um, <laughs> we had a family from our previous church in Hilton. And Sam and Stu, Sam uh, was the children's worker. And uh, she married Stu, and they've got two kids now. But when she was children's worker at Hilton Baptist Church where we were, she came to me and she said, I've got a dream of a school for rural children on a hill. And so we started a non-profit organization. She worked part-time for the church, three days for the church, three days for the non-profit, just to get this thing going. And they reminded me that I gave a hundred rand and became the founding trustee of something that is known as Itemba Project. And under their care and under their leadership, an amazing intervention has taken place in the lives of the people, especially the children of an area that's home to about 80,000 people called Sweetwaters. And the fruit and the results, it literally has changed thousands of lives. And I mean, there's just so much support from all over the world. They've got partnerships with projects and governments and who knows what else that is investing in this space. But here's the thing. I told them again. I've got shares in your lives. It's the best hundred rand I ever spent. You see, you taking what you've got now and you sowing it forward. Now, of course, they are the ones who are doing the work, but it took someone to hear her dream and create a vehicle and an avenue for that to begin to happen for life after life after life. And they were just sharing testimony after testimony. Do you remember so-and-so? Do you remember so-and-so? You won't remember so-and-so. You know, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown which will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You are our crown and our joy. You know, when you sow into people in Jesus' name, you're sowing into your eternity. You're literally using your resources and the time and whatever else you've got on this earth, and you're pouring it into a meaningful eternity. People telling us we've got to find reason to live. Oh, eternity gives me plenty. Life now takes on much more meaning when I understand what the future will look like. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about judgment day. The day in which this life will transition for all creation into the next life. And he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And some have to sit on this side and some are sitting on that side. And he says to those who are received into his kingdom to share in this life. He says, when I was sick, you visited me. 
When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you came. You see, in these actions, we store up rewards for eternity. But we also, in these actions, draw the future into the present. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And he's literally talking about the fact that we have these mortal bodies that are going to give up. But he says, don't worry, you're carrying a deposit of your future in your body right now. The Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of what is to come. The life of the ages, the kingdom, its power, its promise, its peace, its blessing are released in my daily experience. In other words, I'm not just using my time to invest in eternity and the kingdom. I'm using the kingdom to transform my time. I'm receiving from the future by the spirit of Jesus the deposit of the kingdom. You see the difference? The one is almost, I could do it all myself. I work so hard because I want to sew up for the kingdom. No, no, no. The other idea is that I take eternal life and I bring it into the present. And a very, very famous passage in John chapter 3, Jesus, again, talking about the future life. So this is all these passages where Jesus talks about eternity and the future. It's to uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he is astonished by Jesus. Literally astonished by the power of his life, his words, his deeds. He says, no one could do what you're doing if God were not with him. It's so clear. God is with you. Jesus says, well then, you want this. You need a new birth. You've got to be born again, born from above. You've got to let heaven come and live. It's a new beginning. How? (laughs) Do I have to... Go into my mother's womb. No, no, no. And essentially he explains in verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. Perish means to be eliminated by time or by death. You won't perish. You will receive. And the word is Ionia Zoe. Two words, and you receive the life of the eternal ages. Now, we often think of that you receive eternal life. In other words, you go to heaven when you die. That is true, but that's not the accurate understanding of what Jesus was saying. He's saying the quality of life that characterizes heaven in your future begins to enter the present now. You have the life of that age now. And it's like a deposit. It's placed inside of you. Remember, Jesus isn't telling Nicodemus how to get to heaven. He's explaining to Nicodemus why heaven is coming to earth. No one could do what you're doing if God were not with you. He's not telling him how to go to heaven. He's explaining how. His life can become a conduit for heaven on the earth. Now the glorious thing is, of course he will have life after life. If you entrust in the one who's in the resurrection and the life, of course you can relax. You don't need to be afraid. 
So here's the coolest paradox, I think. The more I draw on this life from the future, <laughs> the more I lay down deposits for the future. In other words, when I learn to do things by the grace and the power and the spirit of God, that's when I'm really storing up treasures in heaven. Life is a gift. It is. And so it's too precious to waste. We must not wish one day away. And integrating eternity into our lives will reflect in our diary will reflect in my bank statement. It will reflect in my most precious relationships that I invest and pour myself into. So two thoughts. The one is, if the spirit is the deposit guaranteeing what is to come, then I want to say again and again and again, come Holy Spirit. Yes, he has come. But we read again and again in the book of Acts, for example, in the epistles, it's commanded even, keep on being filled, keep on encountering this life. But maybe someone here this morning is a seeking friend. And, and, and you haven't wrapped your head around repurposing your life for Jesus. And you've tried to take time and life seriously. Maybe even filling it with as much meaning as you can possibly invent. But the reality is that when you take popular definitions of what will be fulfilling and what will be meaningful and what will be powerful, you find yourself increasingly disillusioned. Jesus did not just say, I am the resurrection and the life. He also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Can I invite you, if Jesus has spoken you to you, why don't you turn your quest for life into a quest for Jesus? You will find life by finding him. You will find life by finding him. There are many opportunities and ways in which you can do that. You can do that today. You can ask for a conversation. If you've got questions, you'd like to explore that. In a few weeks' time, we're going to start an alpha course. And... Uh, and it explores the questions of life. You're welcome to sign up for that. Why? Because life is a gift. Why not receive it? In Jesus' name.